Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Standard and the Borough Press present Underground, Tales for London. Central Line, Worm on a Hook by Tyler Keevil. Read by Ash Reezy. I shouted Shona's name, so it resonated across the Underground station, even though my daughter was right beside me, or right behind me, really, struggling to keep pace. And it was her eagerness to catch up, and my unwillingness to wait, that had set up the impending accident. My parental instincts clocked her velocity, that momentum Shona always carried with her, and how she was looking sideways, distracted by a pigeon pecking at some chips, and oblivious to the pillar looming before her. All of that registered in less than a second, giving me just enough time to enunciate two syllables, Shona, which stretched agonizingly across the five feet between us, echoing ineffectually, serving only to draw the attention of my wife. About a dozen feet behind, also struggling to keep pace with me, even though I was weighed down by Samuel, our six-month-old, in the sling on my chest, to what was about to happen when Shona's face collided with the pillar, which it did, the impact both visible and audible. Her head seemed to stop before her body, like a boxer walking into a stiff jab, and a dull pumpkin thock resounded. It was as if I could feel it through the air molecules, through the station floor beneath my feet, a miniature earthquake that rocked me and destabilized the ground. I stumbled, caught myself, looked around, expecting other commuters and travelers to be falling over, clinging to each other, grabbing onto handrails for support. Only they weren't. A couple of people looked with concern at the three-year-old girl who sat down clumsily, one leg folded beneath her, and a few others glanced at me as I spun to double back, cradling the baby in the carrier on my chest, awkwardly loping while trying not to disturb him. I was still hoping that it wasn't as bad as it had looked, that it would just be another scrape and bruise to add to the long list Shona had already racked up in her three years, her body unbelievably resilient, her pain threshold preternaturally high. The fall from the buggy, the tumble off the slide, the bump on the windowsill, all these moments that she had faced and endured. But this was different. She wasn't screaming or crying, and that silence was ominous, frightening, 
And then the severity of it was telegraphed to me by Lowry, who was approaching Shona from the other side and had a clear view of our daughter's face. She's got, she said, in a way that was too controlled, too restrained. I crouched and adjusted Samuel, craning my neck so that I could see what my wife had seen. A streak of blood leaked from an inch-long gash on Shona's cheek. The surrounding skin was already puckered, swollen, going molten. And I was thinking to myself, this is bad. This is really bad. This is not good. It might have played out differently if we'd been in Canada, where I grew up, or Wales, where Lowry is from, and where we live. In those familiar locations, we would have been more confident and assured, capable of dealing with calamity, bad luck, the unforeseen. But we weren't in either of those places. We had come down to London because our old friend Beatrice from Los Angeles was in town with her wife, briefly, and they couldn't make it out to Wales to see us because B had an intense schedule of meetings lined up with donors for the international charity she worked for. Lowry had been inclined to skip a visit. The prospect of the long drive down with a three-year-old and a baby and navigating London by car, train, and tube filled her with a kind of existential dread. I had campaigned to go. Friends from our past, particularly North American friends, rarely visited the UK. Plus, it was B, who had meant so much to us at one time, and who carried with her a kind of glamour, moving in the circles she did, raising funds from high-profile sources, celebrities, politicians, CEOs. On top of that, Lowry and I were at that stage of child-rearing, where we had grown terrified that the children were not just taking over our lives, but becoming our lives. I was more frightened of that than Lowry, who, it has to be said, had accepted the burdens of motherhood with far greater equanimity than I had the much lighter load of fatherhood. And so even though it bothered me that B couldn't take or make time to visit us, I was still intent on visiting her and proving to her and ourselves that we weren't those kind of parents, but another kind, the kind that could casually load cot, blankets, milk bottles, toys, picture books, nappies, what I would call diapers, baby wipes, fruit snacks, and all other manner of supplies into the back of our battered hatchback and drive five hours down the motorway, making frequent stops for bathroom breaks, for feeds, for much-needed coffee, and across London during rush hour through the congestion zone, somehow having to pay the fee twice, and to our Airbnb, which, as ever, wasn't in quite as good an area as we'd expected all the while trying to maintain some semblance of civility and pretend we were having fun, calling B to tell her we'd arrived and couldn't wait to see her, deciding to meet her at the British Museum the next day, struggling to get the kids down and having half a glass of wine before weathering another sleepless night, Shona didn't like being away and Samuel was still teething, before getting up and walking to the nearest tube station to ride the central line across London to Hoburn, again at rush hour, at which point the absurdity of my ambitions, the sheer hubris of the endeavor, had caught up with us, and I had led our three-year-old daughter directly into a concrete pillar. Which is how we'd arrived where we were at. The pillar itself was particularly wicked-looking. It had sharp-edged ornamentation, little baroque flourishes like you might see on a gothic gate or portcullis. One of those edges had split the skin of Shona's face, neat as a scalpel, just above the cheekbone. A sliver of white showed in the center of the cut, 
fatty tissue maybe, or the hypodermis. On an adult, we would have accepted it with more stoicism, but on Shona, it was appalling, shocking, agonizing. I'd never seen my child injured in that way, not beyond scrapes and scratches that were almost endearing in their scale. Little boo-boos and owies. This was not a boo-boo or owie. I didn't see it, I said. Lowry hadn't said anything about it being my fault, but there was a set to her jaw, the clench of suppressing all the things she wanted to say, the pent-up frustration, burnished by the knowledge that it would have been so different if the situation was reversed, if she had been the one leading. I would have blamed her, peevishly and pettily and probably publicly. The wipes, I said, the baby wipes. I said this in a stricken, desperate way, as if the baby wipes could magically wipe away not just the blood, but the hurt and the wound and my guilt as well. Lowry furiously unzipped her handbag and rooted through it, discarding various bits of jetsam in the process. Lipstick, makeup mirror, tampons, until she found the wipes and tugged several out, using them in a bunch to quickly daub at the blood, while avoiding the cut itself. Blotches soaked through the wipes, blossoming like Rorschach blots. Shona was emerging from the initial shock of it, but hadn't started to cry yet. Plaintive moans faltered from her mouth like the vibrations of a throat singer. I told her that it was okay, that she'd be okay. We need to get her to a hospital, Lowry said. That's going to need stitches. I looked at her, dazed and disbelieving. It's not that bad. It's that bad. Can you look on your phone? Only Lowry had a smartphone. I had drowned mine in a canal while canoeing on a stag party, so was temporarily stuck with an old brick. No internet or wireless or maps. Lowry told me to hold Shona, and I knelt by her and took the wipes and applied pressure to the cut, trying to comfort her while simultaneously shushing Samuel, who had begun to make his soft but urgent grunts that usually presaged a bout of wailing. Lowry pulled her phone out of her open purse, the innards of which still lay sprawled about us like the contents of an emptied stomach, and tapped at it. What do I look for? She asked me. Just look up hospital. Just type in hospital or whatever. She tried, then stopped, raised the phone, rotated on the spot like a diviner dousing for water. And she, of course, had no signal, which any Londoner would have known, seeing as we were underground in what amounted to a concrete bunker. While all this went on, people continued to pass to and fro in the station, moving about us in currents of legs and feet. We were between the ticket machines and barriers, an obvious obstruction. In passing, people looked and, seeing the situation, hurried on. They no doubt sensed the pain, the tension, the parental panic, and it must have seemed safest to avoid that. We'll have to ask somebody, Lowry said decisively, shoving her phone away. She scrambled across the floor, chasing errant detritus from her purse, which she refilled. Could you take Sam? I asked her. I'll carry Sean. This led to the convoluted passing of the carrier and baby from me to her, unstrapping and restrapping, wriggling and squirming before he was settled. Then I crouched and lifted Shona, cradling her across my torso while also applying pressure to the cut. When I picked her up, she started shrieking, harsh and repetitive as a fire alarm. People turned to look and gave us a slightly wider berth, this bubble of space forming around us as we moved towards the ticket barriers, 
sweaty and bedraggled, as out of place as if we just time-warped in from an apocalyptic future, searching for somebody who could save us. We found Robert. Robert was tall and lean as a lodgepole, and had the kind of stoop you developed from constantly having to duck. He wore an official-looking two-person uniform that vaguely resembled a cop's, except, of course, he had no pistol or nightstick. He saw us coming and heard us, it was impossible not to hear us, and observed our approach with his eyebrows raised in surprise and concern. I knew his name was Robert because he had a name tag. Robert. Our daughter cut her face, I said pointlessly. There was blood all over her shirt, all over my hand and the wipe. Where's the nearest hospital? Lowry said. It seems strange to me now that we didn't ask Robert if there was a first aid station on site or a trained first aider. For all I know, Robert himself could have administered first aid. But we had it in our heads that we needed a hospital, and he accepted this compulsion. Yeah, man, Robert said laconically. That last needs seeing to. Here's what you gotta do, you hear me? We hear you, I assured him. We hear you. It wasn't completely true. I could hardly hear anything. I had to raise my voice over Shona's anguish, as if yelling to Robert in a hurricane. St. Bartholomew's is closest. You need to take the central line two stops west. Two stops. To St. Paul's, yeah? Then it's a short walk to Bart's. They'll sort you out there. Lowry said, Central line, two stops, St. Paul, St. Bartholomew's. She said this firmly and to herself as a way of committing it to memory. And I said, Thanks, man. Thanks a lot. Sorry about this. It was a pillar. I didn't admit that I'd marched her into it myself. Robert directed us down an escalator towards the central line, and we found it without trouble. But there were two platforms to choose between. I checked the large map on the wall of the station, arranged vertically, showing all the various stops. I spotted some paws and pointed at it, and motioned Lowry to hurry. Come on, a train's arriving, as a warm wind breathed across the platform, like the stagnant exhale of some giant prehistoric worm. And the headlight of the train appeared followed by the crescendo roar as it burst from the tunnel in a blur of metal and glass and lurched to a halt, the brakes an echo of Shona's screeching. The doors yawned wide and sucked us inside. I slumped into a seat and held Shona and rocked her and shushed her gently. Lowry came to stand over us, patting at Samuel, who had also begun mewling, frightened by the pain of his sister, and I assumed nobody would want to take the seats next to us, but a young woman with spiked green hair settled one seat over. I glanced at her, startled, and she peered openly at Shona, whose cheek had swollen to twice its normal size. It looked like a spider bite inflamed with infection. Her wails now had form. My face, my face. That looks bad, the woman said. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We're taking her to St. Bartholomew's. I don't know why I said that rather than the hospital. 
It made it sound as if we were on a religious pilgrimage, taking our sick child to be healed. The woman made a sympathetic face and plugged in her headphones, cranking them, the screaming of raw punk emerging like a chorus to Shona's despair. As the train lurched into motion, I continued to pat and soothe and rock her, without any real hope of calming her. It was an automatic gesture, something I had done on nights when she wanted mom, but mom wasn't available. We stopped. The door snapped open and shut, and as we started moving again, I looked up at Lowry, her expression strained, and still tinged by suppressed accusation. I wanted to hold up my hands, admit to her and the whole carriage. It was my fault. I inflicted this hurt, seeking pardon, forgiveness, absolution. Then the tube was slowing again. The blurring outside the carriage wound down, bringing the world into focus, revealing a herd of people waiting to get on, and behind them the station sign, Mile End. I looked up to the tube map above the doors, mentally tracing the red central line. Robert had said two stops, which meant we should have been there. I turned to the woman next to me to make sure. Does this train go to St. Paul's? She unplugged one earbud, shook her head. Other way. In my rush, somehow, I'd led us to the eastbound platform. I looked at Lowry, stricken, and stood up. Passengers were shuffling on already, and of course, staring at us. Two sweaty parents, two screaming children, blood and tears and improvised bandages, all heading the wrong direction on the central line. I emitted an urgent, frustrated sound and pushed bullishly against the flow of people filtering onto the tube, behavior that might have provoked backlash in other circumstances, but Shona's condition overrode that. I made it to the platform and stepped out just as the doors were closing, looked back to see Lowry gazing at me helplessly from the other side of the glass, both of us as stupefied as animals in a menagerie. She shook her head, helpless, and I didn't know what to say, so I just shouted, I'll meet you at the hospital, call B, before the train pulled away, taking my wife and son with it, and I was alone on some random platform with my wounded daughter. I had been holding or carrying Shona for about ten minutes, and my biceps had a steady muscle burn. My skin prickled with heat, and my shirt leached to my back. I felt a steady, panicked pulse at the base of my neck. Shona's keening had shifted to a lower-pitched wailing. Mingled with it, I heard music. So peaceful, the contrast was dreamlike, drumming and melancholic singing. A famous song that I should have known. Lines about a knight in a book and a worm on a hook. I listened, dislocated. I found it hard to link up any kind of synaptic connection. Fortunately, I didn't have to think hard or in a complex way. I knew I just had to get on a train going the other direction, to St. Paul's and St. Bartholomew's. The station had an overhead walkway connecting the two opposing platforms. To go back, I had to get Shona up and over and down. I shifted her, holding her in a hug so that she could link her arms around my neck, and trudged up the steps to the walkway, haunted by the song, so faintly familiar but unfathomable. Something about all the things I'd done wrong. As I descended the stairs on the other side, I heard the rumbling approach of a train and attempted something I clearly shouldn't have, given that I was breathless and exhausted and moving on weak, gelatin legs and holding an injured child in my arms. I tried to hurry. I didn't run exactly, but I quickened my steps and held Shona steady while I stomped and puffed downwards 
as if working out on a Stairmaster. Only I couldn't see the stairs past Shona's head and shoulders. And on the second to last step, I misjudged, and my heel skidded off the lip, and my leg shot out and I went down, unable to halt my momentum, toppling forward in a slow, absurdist manner, like a clown dying in pantomime, putting out an elbow to protect Shona, feeling the electric jolt in my funny bone, the wrench in my shoulder, the jarring impact followed by stunned stillness. I rested like that, half on my side, truly brought low, as the train wheezed up and sucked open its doors and spat out passengers and swallowed up others. I didn't have it in me to get up, to get on. And as it pulled away, I merely lay there, clutching my daughter as if weathering a storm, while people stepped over us until somebody asked if we were okay. I looked up. Standing above us was a woman who had a long gray ponytail and a conga drum hanging from a strap around her neck. The busker who'd been playing. I'm going to St. Bartholomew's, I said, repeating my mantra. You've got to slow down, the lady said. She smelled of weed and was wearing a faded Isle of Wight festival t-shirt and baggy cords. She had the same kind of confident serenity that I associated with Beatrice. Can you help me up, I asked her. She extended a hand, and I managed to haul myself upright without letting go of Shona, who was still sobbing, though no more so than before our tumble. I heard rattling and turned to look down the track. Another train was arriving, only minutes after the first. It had been meaningless to rush. As if to emphasize this, the woman nodded and began drumming her song again, indolent and purposeful, and as we stepped on the train, finally, I caught the title line, about a bird on a wire. Daddy, Shona said, the words a painful effort. I like that song. I told her I did, too. From there, it was a long, morose tube ride back towards St. Paul's. A teenager tapping away on his phone stood, offering us his seat without actually looking up from the game he was playing. I sank into the seat, and Shona settled into a dull state of semi-shock on my chest, and I continued humming to her, carrying the lady's tune as we swayed back and forth to the rhythm of the tube, worming its way beneath the city, winding and convulsing. It hurts, Shona said and whimpered. I murmured commiserations, rested my chin on her collarbone. I felt empty and resonant as the woman's drum, which seemed to still pulse and echo in my skull. The brooding resentment I'd carried, against B for not being able to visit us and insisting we come to her, against Lowry for lagging behind, for not keeping up, for accepting our parental fate, faded, replaced with impressions of my drive down the motorway, my insistence we come in the first place, my compulsion to prove something, to be, to Lowry, to myself, to anybody, that we were succeeding as parents, as people, my furious effort that had led my daughter into a pillar, led me onto the wrong train, and nearly led to another accident. I remembered the woman, Yoda-like, intoning her stoned wisdom. You need to slow down. I kissed my daughter's head, stroked the soft swirl of hair on the crown. Nearly there, I murmured. She didn't respond. I checked. Her eyes were shut. And in that moment I knew, with a grim and terrible certainty, a concussion. She was unconscious, 
You had to keep them awake, alert when they had a bad head injury, otherwise they could sink into a coma, as she clearly had. I stood up, knocking my own head against the handrail on the ceiling of the tube, and held her away from my body. Shona, I said. Shona! Her face twisted up and she grimaced at being disturbed. I'd never been so grateful to hear her cry. By the time we reached St. Paul's, she had sunk back into dozy somnolence, and I'd had about ten minutes rest. My arms and legs were recharged. As we rolled up to the station, I took a few steadying breaths and stepped out onto the platform. I stood for a time, taking stock, taking it slow. Signs further down the platform said way out, and other people were gravitating towards them. I followed one step at a time, hugging my daughter protectively, as if I'd rescued her from an earthquake or flood or burning building. Together we rode up one escalator and another. At the turnstiles I had to explain to the employee, a woman with wire-rimmed glasses, that my wife had our tickets, but we'd been separated and that I needed to get to St. Bartholomew's. The woman had already clocked the blood, the wound, the trauma. Just so you know, she said, they don't have A&E at St. Bart's. They better have something. She shrugged and gave me directions as complex as an algebra equation, which I nodded along to without really absorbing, needing to believe with a kind of faith that I would get us there and they would help us. When the directions finished, I thanked her, as if I'd understood it all, and trudged up the stairs to street level and peered hopelessly up and down the street. A jumble of cars, pedestrians, construction cranes, concrete and glass, the usual city chaos, with me standing in the midst of it, looking for a sign, any kind of sign. My phone started ringing, my brick of a phone that I had to keep in my jacket pocket since it wouldn't fit in my jeans. I shifted my grip on Shona, trying to decide how to get at it, when I noticed a woman wearing a baby carrier across the street making a call. Lowry. I called her name, and again, until she caught sight of me. When the light changed, she hurried across to join me. She had Samuel asleep on her chest. She'd gotten there at the same time, maybe on the same train, since she'd hopped off at the next stop to come back. Can you find the hospital on your phone? I asked. I already have. It's this way. Let's take it slow. As we walked, both of us with a child on our chest, she leaned forward to get a look at Shona's face. How is she? She asked. She stopped crying. It's still bleeding. That's why we're going to the hospital. St. Bartholomew's was an impossibly old and imposing British building that looked like both monument and ruin. We had to pass through a two-story gateway before approaching the hospital proper. Brickwork and sandstone, arches and columns. The interior had been updated and modernized, but it retained the cold gravitas of a church or temple, as if we really had reached some site of pilgrimage. We huddled uncertainly in the main lobby, surrounded by patients, gurneys, staff and scrubs crisscrossing the space until somebody, a young nurse with a surgical mask under his chin like a frog's breathing sack, asked if we needed help. We explained the situation, and though the hospital didn't have A&E, it had a minor injuries unit. We made our way there, solemnly, down a series of corridors. We were assigned a number and collapsed into hard plastic chairs and sat amid other people with minor wounds, ailments, or injuries. Some were adults, but many were children. 
a girl with a dog bite, a boy whose finger had been crushed, a toddler who'd had a minor allergic reaction and looked all flushed and puffy, like a character out of a Roald Dahl book. It made me feel strangely comforted, seeing those children and their parents. It wasn't only us. It was them, too. Or all of us, together. Lowry was studying the wound critically. It's going to scar, she said. I gave a little start. It hadn't occurred to me. I'd only been thinking of the immediate hurt and damage and stitches, not the long-term repercussions. Shona had such a delicate face. The thought of it being marked forever made something in me shrivel and wilt. I guess it will, I admitted. We sat in accusatory silence for another minute, until, finally, I told Lowry I was sorry, and she said, it wasn't your fault. And I said that it was, that it usually was my fault. We don't need to stay in London, I said. We don't have to see B. I called her. What did she say? It was hard to hear. She was in one of her meetings. I sat back, gazing dismally at the doors. We hadn't seen B for a year, and now likely wouldn't see her again for a few more. It shouldn't have mattered, but it did. Another misfortune to add to the day's calamity, and proof this whole endeavor I'd led us on had truly been a fool's errand. And even as I sat there brooding about that, the doors to the waiting room opened, and a tall woman in heels and a long jacket with dark hair and dark sunglasses strode in regally. I thought I was imagining her for a moment and stood up. Beatrice, Lowry called. She had a shopping bag in each hand. She looked like a general striding into a field hospital among the wounded, confident and commanding and ready to boost troop morale. What are you doing here, I asked. Lowry called and told me what happened. She removed her sunglasses and studied Shona critically. How is the little gremlin? Shona had woken up, either at me standing or the sound of B's voice. She smiled sleepily, shyly. Auntie B, she whispered like an incantation. Come here. She dropped her bags and Shona slid smoothly, willingly into her arms. Did you smash your face, darling? She said it with a Texan drawl. You must have been so brave. Shona admitted that she cried, but not too much. B sat and put her on her knee and produced an array of toys, which she had apparently picked up on the way, or else had planned to give us at the museum. Some of the other kids wandered over, and she even had trinkets to hand out to them. It was like Santa Claus, or a saint, had descended on the ward. Don't you have meetings this aft? I asked her. I canceled them, she said definitively. She teased and tickled Shona until she forgot about the hurt. And B cheered us up, too. She told us about her own childhood injury. How she had slipped in the bathroom and cracked her chin on the sink, splitting it to the jawbone. There'd been blood everywhere. Look, she said, tilting her head up. And she really did have a scar there. A thin, white scar, curved like a crescent moon. She said she knew people now in L.A. who'd had such scars removed but she never would. It gives a face character, she assured us, having a scar or two. We all need a few knocks, a few blemishes. It makes us tougher and stronger. Isn't that right, darling? She said to Shona. And you're a toughie, aren't you? A little supergirl. You're invincible. 
Shona jutted out her chin, solemn and determined, and so endearing that I had to look down, away, overcome. And I fumbled for my wife's hand and felt her squeeze my fingers in return, giving and forgiving, both of us able to believe, just for a moment, that it was true. Worm on a Hook is a short story of the underground from Tyler Keevil. Tyler Keevil's latest novel, No Good Brother, is out now and is available in audiobook, hardback, and ebook. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.